This is the Transcend Human Podcast, a weekly show where we learn what it means to rise above the human condition. We hope the conversation today is just what you need for the week ahead. everybody welcome back transcend human podcast what is today monday oh it's october 31st happy halloween everyone great to have you here so let me just start out by apologizing um for those of you who showed up last week jumped on the podcast and were looking for an episode and realized that there wasn't one so that's the first time that's happened in a really long time uh, a couple things were going on that week. I uh, wasn't feeling great. So uh, anytime you're sick, you just, your whole schedule gets disrupted, right? And so I think that week, Tammy even said, hey, why don't we uh, record our first episode of the podcast series on uh, fostering? Perfect timing. I was grateful that she was willing to do that. Um, but my throat was a mess and I was coughing and it was like, no, this just isn't going to happen. So that happened. And then it was also senior week. So my son is a senior, plays football, and they have this week where they do a bunch of fun stuff for the seniors. So that was going on. There was just a lot going on at the time. And I wasn't able to get the podcast episode recorded. So that's what happened. Those are my excuses. But it stinks, right? It stinks for you. It stinks for me, especially for me being an Enneagram One. I've got that level of uh, perfectionism and uh, just I really buy into the whole concept of standardization and having a routine and all of those things. So it was rough. It was rough not being able to put out an episode a friend of mine who listens to the show uh, texted me and he's like, hey, are you okay? Uh, any Anything anything going on? <laughs> I'm like, no, sorry. Uh, just didn't get around to doing it this week. So there is that. Uh, but thanks for checking in. On the, uh, on the flip side, you know, I've got a wife who is not an Enneagram 1. She's an Enneagram 7, much more rational than me when it comes to those sorts of things. And she just kind of pushed back a little bit and was like, what's the big deal? Like, you can't expect that it's always going to happen. Um, you don't have to put one out every single week. Be a little more free-flowing uh, with your time and with your life. <laughs> so uh, it's it's great, right? We balance ourselves out. It's a great marriage, great relationship because we we are kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum like that. And opposites attract as we've talked about before. All right, so we are back, though. Um, this is going to be a fun episode. It'll be a little bit different than most episodes. Um, I'm just going to tell my story when it comes to addiction. Uh, I've never done this before. I mean, we've talked about it on the podcast before a little bit. I've touched on it, but I don't think I've ever fully walked through my story. Um, and, and there's a number of reasons why I wanted to do this and I'll go over those in a minute, but so just know that this is going to be a slightly different episode 
for those of you who struggle with addiction or have a friend or family member struggling with addiction, uh, this might be for you. Uh, and there may be some of you who have never even um, thought about it. So this might be a little a little one-off that you're like, I, I don't know, I didn't really need that. So whatever the case, um, wherever you find yourself, uh, that's what we're doing today. So we're not having a minute of transparency because this, this is going to be a full hour of transparency. So uh, we will definitely touch on transparency. All right. So today's topic, transcending addiction, and I'm going to walk through 10 things. I'm not going to read them all to you right now. We'll just jump in. Number one, why today? So I was thinking about this the other day. Um, I, I've spent some time on TikTok lately, and there's a girl on TikTok named Jenna. Uh, I'll put her link in the show notes so that you can find her if you're interested. But Jenna uh, is a recovering alcoholic, and she's a nurse, and she puts out you know these TikTok posts every single day, if not more. And they're just really, really good. They're really good. I I found myself attracted to her posts just because of their transparency and their honesty. And um, I love her style. I love her story. Um, and so I got caught up in in just watching these uh, TikTok posts. Well, a while back, they decided they were going to do a podcast. Her and uh, somebody that she met online named Daniel. And so together, Daniel and Jenna have put out a podcast called Sobriety Uncensored. And I think there's up what maybe three, three maybe four episodes out right now. Uh, and so you know because I follow her on TikTok, I I jumped over and I started listening to their podcast. And it's it's really really good. And it got me thinking, right? It got me thinking a lot about my story and how it how um, how it all went down. Um, obviously, they're talking about sobriety, right? So they're talking about the fact that both of them quit drinking and what their life has been like since. And that's really the piece that um, that I think I resonate with is the, the way that they've gone about their recovery, their program, if you will. And it, it really pushed me to ask myself, why haven't you talked more about it? Or why haven't you kind of told your story um, in order to just put it out there, in order to help other people? And that really, that's really what I wrestled with, right? Is why would you put it out there? Why now? Why today? Uh, so I came up with a number of reasons, right? First off, I think I'm I'm doing this for myself. So just to see if I could lay it all out, see if I could tell the story in a clear and concise way and and help myself remember how it started, why it was there, what it did to me. Um, and how good it's been since I stopped. So for me, uh, then I also wanted to document this for posterity, right? So for my family, for my kids, just so that they have this information, so that they know me better, so that they have a kind of a firsthand account of the things that I was going through um, and and the, the effect that it had on me as a person. And then finally, I did it for you. Right for the listeners, someone, someone on here might just skip right over it and be like, "Yeah, that's that's really not me." And if that's you, great, good for you. 
but there may be somebody listening, someone that's on the fence, right? Someone who's tried to stop a few times and is starting to feel that sense of hopelessness. And if that's you, keep listening because there is definitely hope. Number two, family history. So there's a possibility that there's a family history of addiction, but I really wasn't privy to that information. No one ever told me, oh, yeah, yeah, uncle so-and-so or aunt so-and-so or, or your great-grandfather or your grandfather or grandmother. No one really explained that to me as I was growing up, that there's addiction in our family and that it's, uh, it's a thing, so look out for it. Nothing like that. But somehow, for some reason, I feel like at least two of the three kids in my family, two or three of my siblings, uh, have addictive personalities. And it's potentially three out of three, but I've never really discussed this with them. So I can't speak for my brother and sister, even though I know that at least one of them has struggled with addictive uh, behavior. But I can just speak for me. And for me, when I think back and I look at, you know, at the... Uh, some of the personality traits and some of the the things that may have led to this. Uh, for me, I'm the firstborn, and I have no idea if that means anything or not, but uh, I think I've read somewhere before um, that firstborns tend to have that tendency, that there may be a higher rate of um, addictive behavior and addiction in firstborns just because firstborns tend to be a little bit more uptight, a little bit more uh, goal-oriented, a little more driven, uh, which kind of lends itself to addictive behavior. Next, I'm an Enneagram 1. We've talked about this before. I think if you do a little research on the Enneagram, um, you'll find that Enneagram 1s do have a propensity toward addictive behavior. Next, I'm an introvert, which may or may not have anything to do with addiction, but for me, some of my introvertedness, I think, helped buy into that concept of uh, drinking alone, things like that. And then obviously there's mental health, right? Mental health related things like depression or anxiety, uh, which I'm I'm sure I fell into that bucket on some level, at least on the, the side of depression or um, anger, like a lot of anger, things like that. So mental health, I'm sure played a role in it as well. Number three, upbringing. So simply put, when I was being raised by my parents, I was raised with this belief that you just don't drink alcohol. It's not even a conversation, right? It's just not something you do. I never saw my mom or dad drink. I never really saw anyone else in my immediate vicinity drink. Um, it just wasn't a thing, right? In fact, we didn't drink caffeine either. That was another thing that was <clears throat> kind of off limits. So we didn't have coffee in the house, tea, soda, any soda that had caffeine in it. In fact, I can still remember the first um, the first pop or soda that I ever drank that had caffeine in it. It was funny. It was uh, I think I was getting a ride back from baseball practice with a friend of mine, and I'm like sitting in the back of their SUV, and there was this Pepsi in the back. And I can't remember if it was warm or if it was like in a cooler or something like that. But um, my friend could tell that I was looking at it. And he's like, he's like, you want it? Just you can have it. And so I cracked open this Pepsi. And that was my first experience with dark cola, right? <laughs> I've, it's so funny that that's something I remember. 
but it was probably because it was off limits, right? I wasn't allowed to drink it. And so uh, my first experience was seared into my memory. But when I look back, I mean, all of these things were part of my religious upbringing, right? My traditional Christian upbringing. So, you know, the Bible was behind all of it, right? You know, my parents didn't just say, we don't do this, we don't do that. It was, no, the Bible says you don't do this and you don't do that. So, you know, all the verses in the Bible about drinking, uh, drinking making you a fool, uh, don't be drunk with wine, all, all those different verses were used, right? Because that is kind of the upbringing uh, that I had. So, so there was that, but then there was also the fact that these were part of the health message, if you will, of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So, so along with, you know, dietary restrictions when it comes to meat or, or things like that, you know, the, the health message included these stipulations, right? Do not drink alcohol, don't drink caffeine. And so it was all part of my upbringing, all part of that health message. So for most of my, you know, young years, I abstained from all of it. And I probably thought in my head that I'll just never drink. It just, it was the way that I was raised. It was the way that I thought. Um, and I'll finish this uh, section up with a story because it helps to kind of show just the mindset that you have when you're, when you're raised that way. So my dad worked at a college um, in Powell, Wyoming, Northwest Community College at the time. I think it's um, Northwest College or Northwest University now. Um, but when we were there, uh, he was a teacher and he was somewhat involved with the, you know, the, the college culture and the different things that went on there at the, uh, at the school. And so it was, it was in the fall, uh, and they were going to have this hayride and there, the hayride, you know, all of the students could sign up and go on if they wanted to go. And so, you know, he brought us kids as part of the family. And so we went on this hayride. Uh, and for the most part, it was just a fun hayride with, with kids of all ages, people of all ages. Um, but there were, there were college students who, who came and they brought alcohol. And I don't know if it was, you know, something they were supposed to do or not. I think, you know, it was probably one of those things where it's like, hey, we're going to go on this hayride. Let's grab a, let's grab a little um, flask or something, you know, and bring it with us so that we have some alcohol. Um so these kids were pulling out this flask and they were drinking on the way. Uh, and I still remember my parents, you know, not saying anything at the time, but getting home and explaining, you know, that that was alcohol and that they probably weren't supposed to have it, but that's their kids, their college students, whatever. And I just remember that story because I remember thinking as a kid, oh, that's so sad or, oh, you know, they're, they're breaking the rules or, or whatever it was. I just had that view uh, from my upbringing that that wasn't right. Nothing wrong with it, right? Just going on a little hayride. Um, but again, that was my upbringing, and that was kind of the way that I was raised. Number four, early experimentation. So to this day, I'm not even 100% sure why I experimented with alcohol. If it was, you know, the typical teenager thing, if it was peer pressure, or if I was rebelling against some of those traditional religious upbringings uh, that I had. But it was really junior year in high school when it started, which is probably like old for some people, right? I feel like some people these days start much earlier 
uh, that it's it's something that parents allow their kids to try at home, things like that. But because I never had any of that, it just kept I kept getting older and older and, and never had that experience. Uh, but junior year in high school is when it started. Um, and I went away to a boarding academy for junior and senior year. So I was away from home. I was living in a dormitory. And I remember my roommate, I think he had gone to a wedding over the weekend and and there was a bunch of bottles of wine. And so he, somehow he either stole one or he, um, <laughs> his parents had taken some home and, and he grabbed one or two. And he brought these bottles of wine back to our dormitory, which was obviously completely off limits, right? We weren't allowed to have alcohol as, as high school students. But he brought these bottles of wine back and, and they were just hidden in our room. And one night, uh, he, he was like, hey, you guys want to want to get this stuff out? And so uh, the, the dormitory, the lights uh, would go out at 10 o'clock. And when I say go out, it wasn't like a, oh, yeah, you need to turn your lights out and go to bed. It was literally a breaker down in the main area of the dormitory. And whoever was working the desk that night would, would you know, call it out over the loudspeaker, lights out 10 minutes or whatever. And when it was time for lights out, boom, you know, that breaker would be thrown and the lights of the entire uh, dormitory would literally go out. Now, the power was still on, uh, so our, our alarm clocks worked and all that kind of stuff. But the, the main lights of every room would just automatically go out. And then in the hallway, you would have, you know, every second or third light would be on for, for safety reasons or whatever. So the lights had gone out. Uh, we were supposed to be in bed and uh, my roommate cracked open one of these bottles of wine and I don't even know what we used for cups. For all I know, it was little like, you know, cups from the bathroom or something. Um, but four or five of us sat around uh, in one of the rooms. We, we opened a door so we had some light, sat around in this room and we poured out this bottle of wine in all, all these little cups and we just sat there and drank as friends. And that was it. I think that was my first experience with alcohol. Then senior year, um, it got to the point where I was literally searching it out. So the dean who ran the entire dormitory had a daughter. And I think she had graduated the year before and she was just sticking around because she didn't have anything else to do. Um, and so I would get it from her. And she seemed to have access to it on a regular basis. And so I started going with hanging out with her, drinking with her. Then there was this other um, lady who had been hired on to be the spiritual advisor uh, for the school. Um, and I would actually get alcohol at her house. <laughs> Imagine that. The spiritual advisor handing out alcohol. Uh, side note, this is the same spiritual advisor who uh, literally tried to get me to sleep with her at one point. Uh, but that is a whole different story. So it was just a matter of going around finding alcohol and and drinking on the side um, every now and then. And then there were parties. Now, parties at this school were few and far between. First of all, because we lived on a dormitory campus, right? It was a small campus. It wasn't like you could go somewhere on campus and throw a party. Um, the dormitories were very locked down with with deans and assistant deans and uh, staff members who kind of, you know, 
walked around and made sure everything was going okay. So every great now and then, you know, we would leave campus for the weekend and, and there would be a party. And so I, I had my two or three of those that happened senior year. And I, I can still remember one of them. I uh, went over to my friend Steve's house, Scott and Steve, with a couple other people. Um, and I remember I had my first experience with Everclear. So pouring Everclear into, I believe it was orange juice, but whatever the case, um, that was also my first experience with throwing up. And I got to do that fun thing where you're like, oh my gosh, I am never going to drink again, only to do it again, <laughs> because that's what you do, right? Number five, college and subsequent phases. So college ended up just being more of the same. Random parties where I continued to experiment, continued my growth as a, as a drinker. Um, I lived at home, uh, so... I can still remember almost getting caught a few times, going out to parties, coming back in, um, full-on drunk, I'm sure, banging into things, um, you know, flipping lights on and probably waking people up in the house. But, you know, when I think back, I'm, I'm sure my parents probably knew. But if they did, they never said anything. So uh, that's always been a conversation that we haven't had. And there were lots, like I said, there were lots of different parties. There were um, trips that we went on and drinking that happened on these trips. Um, I can still remember uh, going to Warren Dunes State Park in Michigan. And, uh, you know, we, we planned ahead. We got a bunch of alcohol. We took it with us. And a friend of mine, um, <laughs> I can still remember that day because we, we started drinking when we got to the dunes in the car, like we, we started there, uh, then we put it all in our, in our bags or in our coolers and we took it to the beach. Interestingly enough, you're not allowed to drink on the beach. Uh, I think there was a rule there against alcohol, but we took it anyways. And over the course of the day, you know, I mean, I mean, I got drunk to the point where I was just falling asleep. It's typically what I do. I get tired and I get, I get, uh, groggy and I just fall asleep. But my friend is the opposite. He's one of those angry drunks. And so uh, the more he drank, the more inappropriate he started getting. Uh, he started interacting with girls on the beach, um, you know, going over and, and bothering them. And uh, at some point, it got to the point where people were going going up to the ranger station uh, because Warren Dunes is a state park in Michigan. So people were going up to the ranger station and reporting that uh, there were kids on the beach with alcohol and they, you know, please do something about these kids. So we were all removed from the beach. And I can still remember my friend, because he was a little out of control and a little angry, uh, was taken up to the ranger station and there was a, a bench or like a, a picnic table. And they literally handcuffed him to the picnic table. And I can still remember him sitting there and he was yanking his hand inside the, the handcuffs, like trying to get away from this park bench uh, to the point where his wrists had, had split open and were bleeding. And I just remember, wow, this is, this is intense. Like, <laughs> you know, alcohol is a pretty big effect on some people. Um, but, you know, we, we were driven home. 
and um, the alcohol wore off and and we never really talked about it again. It was just one of those things, a party, a party we had at the beach. But the other thing I remember about the college years is that um, I think it's when I started bringing it home, right? So I, I must have turned 21, somewhere in there. I was able to buy it myself. And, and that's when I started bringing it home. Now, I lived at home, and so I would hide it in my room. Um, I would drink at night while I was working on stuff or while I was studying. Um, but that that was kind of a switch in behavior, right? When when you go from going out, hanging out, drinking socially to buying it, bringing it home, uh, and drinking on your own. So that was a change I saw in the college years. Number six, holier than thou. So for some reason, at some point, my drinking stopped. Literally, it just stopped. I have no idea why. Maybe back then I viewed it as a, a phase. Maybe it was like a rite of passage. And at some point it was like, okay, now you need to move on. I graduated. I began working in the mental health field. And for quite a few years, I just didn't drink. In fact, I think I started to view myself this way, like almost as I, as if I'd never drank, right? And for sure that I would never go back. I got married and um, I can still remember I didn't even drink at my wedding. Then on our honeymoon in Jamaica, I can remember we stayed at an all-inclusive resort, so the drinks were free. And I can still remember uh, Tammy and I having a few drinks while we were on our honeymoon. And I I just don't remember it being a big deal. I guess we, we had probably not had conversations about alcohol. It was... It was just, you know, she kind of knew me as someone who didn't really drink that much. Um, but you're in Jamaica, right? So let's let's sample some of the stuff that Jamaica's known for, some of the rum, some of the beer, whatever. Um, so, you know, it was pretty, it was pretty simple, pretty small. Um, then, you know, came home after that and went right back to this lifestyle of I'm not a drinker, right? This is just who I kind of identify with now. I'm not a, I'm not a drinker. And then it it got to the place where I became that guy, right? The one who actually looks down on other people because they drink, you know, I may, I may not have said it to people's faces, but it was probably written on my face. Uh, I can still remember asking my wife sometimes like, you know, why do you, why do you need to drink? Why do you do it? You know, she would go out with her girlfriends every now and then, and they would, you know, go get margaritas or whatever. And I would be like, why do you have to do that? And, and I can still remember sometimes just getting frustrated, you know, and, and almost, you know, getting passive aggressive when she got home because she'd gone out and drank with her friends. Um, you know, when I look back on those days, those are dark days for me, days that were, when I look back there, there's a strong realization that I was just jealous. Literally, my jealousy was coming out in this um, holier than thou attitude trying to get her not to drink because I wasn't drinking. At the end of the day, I just wanted to be doing what they were doing. Number seven, going all in. So at some point in my early 30s, um, my life started crumbling in my eyes. Now, it wasn't, right? I had a great life. (laughs) there There was nothing out of the ordinary, nothing that anyone else probably didn't experience um, as well. But the two things that really pushed me over the edge is, uh, I started having back problems. And so I, I can still remember 
I was walking around my house cleaning up after the kids and I leaned over to pick up a toy and something popped in my back and I literally, you know, went down to my knees and and ended up falling over and just laying on the ground. And I laid there for 20 to 30 minutes because I just couldn't get up. Um, and that was really the, the beginning of the end for me with, with my back. Um, over the next, you know, 10, 15 years, it was in and out of physical therapy, um, you know, getting, getting tests to figure out, oh, which, which part of your spine has a, um, a disc problem now, right? And so back problems started. Next, um, at some point, I, I went to the doctor and they were like, oh, yeah, your cholesterol is really high. And so, you know, they wanted to put me on medication right away. And I'm like, screw that. I don't, I don't need medication. I'll, I'll just fix it with my lifestyle, right? So I exercised, ate a bunch of uh, fiber, put a bunch of fiber in my diet, you know, ate, cut down on things that they said you need to cut down on. Um, and then I went back and got tested again. And the crazy thing is when I got tested again, my cholesterol had actually spiked and gotten higher, which just pissed me off, right? It was like, who on earth changes their diet <laughs> and has their rates rise rather than go down? So that frustrated me, you know, went on cholesterol medication because the guy was like, dude, some people just have high cholesterol. It just runs in their family. So it is what it is. Just take the medication, you'll be fine. But between those two things, my back problems um, and having high cholesterol and not being able to do anything about it, I just got this chip on my shoulder. I was just mad. I was, I was mad at God. I was mad at the world. I'm like, I've lived a pretty good life. I've exercised. I've, I've remained active. I've eaten pretty well. You know, I've done all of these things. And a lot of them, again, a lot of this was tied back to my religion, right? My, my upbringing in Christianity. And in my brain, I think I still thought that if I did the right things, I would get the right response, right? Like if, if you do this, you'll get that. And I wasn't getting that. And that was frustrating. And so at that point, I started drinking again. I literally just threw it all out the window. I'm like, well, screw that. If I'm going to have back problems and cholesterol problems, you know, even trying to live a good life, then why am I trying to live a good life? Why am I trying to, trying to live a clean life? I may as well be drinking and doing stuff that I want to do anyways. And so I jumped back in with zero reservations. I mean, it started slow, right? We have a lake house um, in Indiana. We'd go to the lake on weekends with friends um, and I would, I would drink. And, you know, people would kind of look at me weird, like, oh, I thought you were the guy who didn't drink. But pretty quickly, it was just our routine. It's just what we did. And it was fine. No one said anything. Um, Saturday nights, friends came over to our house, and we would hang out every week. Um, soon it became part of that. Um, it became part of every event that we went to, right? Anything that we did outside of our house, outside of our normal weekly routine, I found a way to inject alcohol into it. Um, even going to the community pool as a family, right? I had to bring a cooler with happy juice, as we called it. And so that's how it progressed. It went from doing nothing to being all in. Number eight, 
the drinking years and attempts to stop. So the next level in the addiction cycle came when I, I started drinking at home. So again, just like in college where it went from drinking socially to drinking at home, the same thing happened um, after a few years of drinking socially. Um, in, instead of just making alcohol part of the things you do when you're out of the house, it was buying it, bringing it home, and drinking every day. At least three to four pretty strong drinks at a minimum every night. And this really began the game, right? The, the game that I would call the functional alcoholic game. So you drink as much as you can while still getting everything done. Being in all the right places, going to work, coaching the kids, keeping the house and the lawn clean. All of the things, all the superficial stuff so that you look good on the outside while you're trying as hard as you can to drink as much as you can on the inside. But of course, this didn't always work, right? That clean facade had chips in it, cracks in it, where things would leak out. Uh, there was a wedding where I completely embarrassed myself in front of my family. Uh, there were times when I drove places when I knew better. I shouldn't have been driving. Um, there were a few times where I had to call off work or just not show up to work because I wasn't in the right frame of mind. And then there was the classic addictive behavior, right? Things like pre-gaming, taking shots when people weren't around, hiding my usage, trying to cover up how fast I went through handles of Jim Beam. Uh, and eventually, during the eight to 10 years that that was going on, um, I thought about stopping numerous times. I tried to stop. I failed. I tried to cut back. I failed. I tried all sorts of different ways, right? Like, oh, I'm just going to drink on the weekends or, oh, I'm, I'm only going to have two every night. And I failed and failed and failed. I can't tell you how many times I tried. I don't even remember. But all I know is that it was enough for me to start realizing that I couldn't. No matter how many times I tried to stop, it just wasn't happening. Number nine, rock bottom and stopping. So I love the way Jenna talks about it um, on her TikToks and on her podcast, the way that she talks about rock bottom, because at the end of the day, she doesn't talk about rock bottom. To her, we all have the same rock bottom. It's when we're dead. It's when we've drank ourselves to death. So the bad things we experience aren't rock bottom. They're just bad things on a scale of badness. And the really bad thing that happened right before we sobered up isn't really our rock bottom. It's just the event that woke us up and really pushed us to the point of saying, I'm done. I'm enough. Enough is enough. I can't do this anymore. For me, it was my wife that pushed me over that cliff. Like any good wife, she'd brought it up a number of times, right? It started with questions like, why do you drink? Or why do you think you drink as much as you do? Or why does it have to be every day? Then in a later conversation, it moved to things like, do you know why you drink so much? Are you depressed? Is it something from your past that you're not telling me about? Things like that. And eventually she got to the conversation that every good wife probably does. And she tried the ultimatum route, you know, kind of trying to scare me into stopping. I think she said something like, at this rate, I just don't know how long I can do this. It may get to the point where you have to choose what's more important to you, me or the alcohol. Now, 
I know you probably think that did it, right? That was the moment I came to my senses. But no, it wasn't. I think that may have happened right before I took the job in California. So I had started flying out every couple weeks. Then I moved in in January of that year. And I was literally here six months by myself before the family joined. So this took off a huge amount of pressure. And it really allowed me to continue living the life I wanted to without any pressure to stop. Of course, when my family moved back out, it all came back up again. And that was about the time that the final conversation happened. It was the conversation that Tammy had with me when she had kind of reached her wit's end. And she said something along these lines. She said, I've realized that it isn't my job to fix you. I've realized that you are the only person who can choose to stop. But just know that emotionally, I'm out. I'm done. This thing has changed you, and it's also changed us. And I don't really know what that means for us. And just in the the tone of her voice, the way that she said it, there was no anger, there was no manipulation, there was no coercion. There was just this level of like pain and sadness, right? This level of disconnection, like she'd given up on me or given up on us. Not that it was her job to keep trying, right? If, if anything, she should have felt this way years before. But in that moment, I think I felt it. I felt the weight of it all, the weight of my behavior, that I was the problem, um, that I was the one really responsible for whatever was going to happen next. Uh, the, the fact that if our family went down the tubes, if, if our family was ruined because of this, it wasn't because of alcohol. It was because of me. It was because of my choice to keep using the alcohol. But that realization also came with a massive level of fear and anxiety because I had tried this before, right? I had tried to stop so many times before and I wasn't successful. So I was, I was nervous because I just didn't think it was possible. And this really might be one of the most dangerous elements of addiction, It's this slow, methodical loss of self-esteem and loss of your internal locus of control. This feeling that you, you can't do it, right? I'm stuck and I'm helpless. But luckily, for some reason, there was, there was one more try in there somewhere, right? Her words had cut me to the core and that was enough to start me down that road one more time. So I purged the house got rid of all the alcohol. I'm not even sure that I told her what my intentions were. I just, you know, probably because I didn't even trust the fact that I was going to be able to do it. But I purged the house and I didn't drink that day. One day turned into another day. That day turned into the rest of the week. That week turned into two weeks. And before you know it, it had been a number of months without alcohol. In August of this year, I think I hit my five years uh, sober. And it's just humbling to look back, right? And think back on those first few days or the first few weeks. The grace that God had for me, right? Allowing me the strength to, to keep going long enough to get over that initial hump. The one that usually drags you back in right? The hump that's usually too hard to climb. You're, you're just almost to the top and then it drags you back down again. 
But somehow, uh, by God's grace, I was able to get over that hump. And after that, it's just putting one more day in front, one more foot in front of the other, day in, day out, week in, week out, and uh, and slowly building your recovery. Number 10, the road to recovery and sober me. So another thing I love about Jenna uh, is her openness about her program. She's really big on this idea that you have to find what works for you and that the same thing doesn't work for every single person, right? She's she's not a rigid AA person, so she hasn't bought into the 12-step process 100%, but at the same time, she'll still go to meetings. She still finds like this level of uh, connection and camaraderie at meetings. But again, she's big on this idea that you have to find what works for you. And that kind of resonates with me because, um, you know, when I look back at my sobriety, when I look back at my recovery, um, AA has never been a part of it. I've never stepped foot in one meeting. And I think there's part of me that always was a little bit nervous about that, right? That I was afraid that because I didn't do that, that it was going to come back because I didn't go the correct route and, and work my way all the way through the 12 steps. Um, but I, I resonate with her explanation that, you know, different strokes for different folks. Some people will resonate with that. Other people won't. So what are the things that, that work for me? Well, I think first and foremost, um, is the fact that I'm a therapist, right? So the, the fact that I went to school to be a therapist and I had actually worked in the addiction field on a very uh, small level. So I, I knew it. I knew the jargon. I knew the the steps. I knew the, the the things that you needed to do to be successful. So even though I didn't follow them for quite a while, I knew them deep inside. Next was the the love and support of a family. So just having that strong family um, was something that uh, definitely helped in those years of of trying to stay sober. Next, you have books, podcasts, and, and even TikTok, right? Social media. There's, there's all sorts of things that are out there that you can watch and read um, to keep your mind in a good place. Like I said, I've never stepped foot in an AA meeting, but I'm not against it either. I believe that for some people, this is literally the only thing that will work. The, the rigidity of a 12-step program is the thing that will keep many people from going back to it. So then the question is, am I good? And I would say, yeah, pretty good. I mean, I don't really test myself. I, I must still have some level of like uh, concern because I don't test myself. I don't go to bars. I don't go to gatherings where alcohol is one of the main attractions. Um, I go to weddings, but I stay pretty close to my wife the whole time. Uh, I don't do the whole fake alcohol thing, right? I don't buy non-alcoholic beer or I don't I don't make mocktails things that things where you're just I'm, I'm trying to get as close as I can without actually going back um, I do drink a ton of coffee so I probably just shifted my addiction from one thing to another but that's a conversation for another day uh, the one thing I do do that I probably shouldn't <laughs> is I'm fascinated by TikToks of people making mixed drinks. I have no idea why, 
but I'm still fascinated with it to this day. Um, I love watching an experienced bartender put unique drinks together with all the bells and the whistles and the, you know, the different colors and the, the layering and, and all of those things, right? It's just fascinating to me. Dangerous? Maybe. But that's where I'm at. Um, I also follow a lot of people on TikTok who are in recovery. So I think that um, that probably balances things out. But at the end of the day, I've learned I can only control today. Or as Jenna puts it at the end of all of her TikToks, I'm not going to drink today. So let's land the plane. No questions this week, right? Like I said, this is just, this is an episode that is all about me, my past, my, my struggle with addiction. So it is what it is. But what I really want to do is to emphasize the fact that life is so much better after the addiction. Even though I still struggle, even though I still have to keep myself honest, it's so much better. And my future looks so much brighter than the the things that I look back on, the the addiction and the addictive behavior that I look back and see. I just cringe sometimes. And then I look forward and there's so much more positivity looking forward. So if you're struggling, right, just know that there's hope. There is hope for you as well. Just do the next right thing. Get help. Talk to somebody. Get a therapist. Go to AA. But create your program and start the process today, like right now today, not like a few hours from now, literally the minute you're done listening to this, get up, go empty out every bottle in your house, no excuses, be done. If that's you, my thoughts and prayers are with you. Uh, For everyone else, just thanks for being here. Again, thanks for hanging out and doing the journey with us. Um, I love all of you. Uh, Thank you so much for indulging me this week in this deeply personal episode. We'll be back again next week with more. So have a great week. Oh yeah. And keep transcending human. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Transcend Human podcast. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, head on over to transcendhuman.com forward slash podcast and navigate to the episode you're looking for. On the website, you'll also find blog posts, podcast series, and other helpful resources to help you navigate the Transcend Human ecosystem. You'll also find links to our social media channels, And as always, if you have questions, feel free to contact us at info at transcendhuman.com. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you back here on Monday morning.